The scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the, of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. The word of the Lord. I wonder if you've heard a story about a, a little girl, Christmas story. This little four-year-old girl, apparently she was drawing a, uh, a picture of the nativity scene one Christmas leading up to that big day. And I think it's important, I suppose, to keep four-year-olds busy in those days leading up to Christmas, right? So what better project than to draw a picture of that Bethlehem stable? So Megan was her name. Little Megan was intently drawing this picture. And when she completed it, she proudly showed it to her mother she explained each figure in the scene, each character, the, the shepherds, the sheep, the wise men, and on it went. Their, their loaded camels, stable even has some cats and dogs in her scene. And of course, at the very center of it was Mary and the baby. She showed it to her mother, and her mother noticed that something was missing. Where's Joseph? she asked, assuming that Megan would remember and quickly sketch him in. But instead, Megan gave this look of exasperation and defiantly asked, who needs Joseph anyway? <laughs> Maybe a little bit like that. <laughs> it's possible, I suppose, to celebrate the birth of our Lord without Joseph. But what would that mean? What would be missing except the figure from the manger at Mary's side. What does Joseph add to the incarnation, the, the word made flesh, God taking on humanity? What does Joseph bring to that picture? It's a fairly astute theological word picture this little girl drew. Since we see very little of this man in the biblical narrative, I mean, if you Google 
Joseph in the Bible, which I did this week just as a test, you don't get this Joseph. You get Joseph, the one that was sold down into Egypt by his brothers way back in the Old Testament. Wouldn't you think Joseph and Mary would trend first? <laughs> he doesn't. Who needs Joseph anyway? You know, last week I shared that my daughter Laura would have a child this week, and sure enough, last Sunday night she did. And there's little Kate Elizabeth, born just this last week. Born into a nursery mix with three other siblings, all under five. She has her next oldest sibling, Anna, 16 months her senior. And so little Anna, poor Anna, she's in these early days of sorting out this new life that has kind of imposed itself on her crib and nursery and life, sorting out this interloper. <laughs> There's been some good moments, but also some very confusing moments for little Anna. Here's a picture of the three of them keeping a wary eye. Families, it seems, require this constant recalculation, understanding. This concept that love just needs to continue to expand and envelop others. You know, when Laura herself was born, it was a snowy Sunday morning in November. It had been a long weekend already, although no one ever sympathizes with the father. <laughs> Nor should they. <laughs> But we had already made one anxious hour-long drive across the windswept prairies of northern Idaho, those wheat fields up there. We'd done that once, and the whole process came to a halt, and we were told to go home and come back later. So we did. By the time the real event happened, the next day, there had been little sleep for several days. And I knew I was tired, but again, who cares? <laughs> but still, I wasn't obviously the one to give birth. When the time came, Cindy was moved into the birthing room, and I trailed along kind of awkwardly behind, as we do, standing silently by, waiting for the on-call weekend doctor to show up. This wasn't my first rodeo, it was my third, so... I could see that Cindy was more than ready. In fact, I'd essentially delivered our second child because the midwife was there, but the assistant didn't get there in time, and so she turned to me and she said, you're going to catch. <laughs> and so I did. So I knew that she was ready with this third child. The word we were given was the doctor was not to be called until absolutely the last minute. My legs were weary from standing and waiting. But again, who cares? Right? <laughs> Cindy was ready. When the doctor finally came in all gowned and gloved and masked, I momentarily shifted from one foot to another and kind of caught my balance by putting a hand on the bed where she was laying. And the doctor came a little bit unglued, barked at me, and with and a lot of ire, it seemed to, to me, <laughs> said something about how I had ruined her sterile field 
And now they would have to reset everything and almost said to me, why are you even here? I felt that. <laughs> why are you here? Who really needs a father around the cradle anyway? Little Laura, she got me out of preaching that morning. I called from the nursery at the hospital down to the church, and I said, I'm not going to make it today. Maybe you can sing an extra hymn or two and read some more scripture, which they did. And a week later when I was back in the pulpit, I was told several times, don't worry, that was one of the best services we ever had. <laughs> Who really needs a father anyway? <laughs> it's no wonder Joseph, he so often goes missing, doesn't he, in our reflection of this sacred time, the birth of our Savior. Quiet Joseph, we have said of him. Who was he? Family home was in Bethlehem small town outside of Jerusalem. At some point in their history, Joseph and his family had moved 90 miles north up to Nazareth. The reason may have been business. In fact, recent, uh, I read this this week, recent architect, ar archaeological, yeah, I can't even say that word, archaeological work <laughs> has discovered um, this bustling Roman city of, of Sephoris, which is just four miles from Nazareth this ancient kind of Roman town near to Nazareth. It was a beautiful city, colonnades and a forum, an imposing theater, a palace, fancy villas, a true Roman city. Here's a picture of the, the theater. So the discovery of Sephoris has caused New Testament scholars to re-examine some of our assumptions about Jesus Perhaps he was not as rural and kind of backwoods as we originally think, thought. Perhaps he went to the theater, maybe saw plays. One thing's for sure, there was plenty of work in Sephoris. Joseph, a carpenter or a builder perhaps. His father before him was a carpenter. Joseph would be a carpenter. Jesus would be one. So Joseph is there in Nazareth instead of Bethlehem because he's a builder and there are so many construction projects offering employment. In the carpenter's shop there in Nazareth, Joseph would make farm implements, plows and yokes and household kind of things, bowls and spoons and furniture, stools, tables. In Sephoris, he worked perhaps on larger projects, houses and villas maybe even the theater. I love that image of the thought of the two of them, Joseph and Jesus, walking those four miles from Nazareth to this Roman town. On the way, working, carrying their tools, talking about the day ahead and what that would entail, what it would be to, to work all day and then to walk home at the end of the day together, reflecting on it all, father and son. Joseph came from this distinguished family, the house of David. It's a little bit like being, you know, from the house of the Mayflower. You know, maybe you could trace your descendants back to Miles Standish or William Bradford. Same thing. Joseph would know how to read Hebrew and 
perhaps enough Greek and Latin to get by in the business world. He spoke Aramaic. His life was organized around work and synagogue. When he was a boy, he would have learned to read Hebrew in the synagogue. And when it came time for him to take his place there, he would read out loud to the elders. A custom that was preserved across the centuries and practiced today in Judaism as a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah. His family responsibilities were paramount. Joseph would have taken care of his elderly parents in his own home until they died. Nazareth, we know, is not big. Early disciples, Nathaniel, remember when he was called? He said, well, he got introduced to Jesus. and First thing was kind of a jab. He said, what good could come out of Nazareth? Who are you? Despite its proximity to this Sephoris, it was still a very small town, Nazareth, with a very poor reputation. But Joseph's family and Mary's family would have known each other. Joseph may even have done work for them. In any event, at some point, Joseph noticed young Mary and asked her parents for her hand in marriage. He was most likely in his early to late 20s. She was 14, 15. Joseph would have brought a gift. 20 shekels was the, the going rate for an appropriate marriage proposal, maybe a month's wage. Mary's parents agreed. Maybe they consulted with Mary, maybe not. But they all went to see a rabbi together, and in the presence of two witnesses, they put together a contract, a legal document, and Mary and Joseph were betrothed, a sort of engagement all below with much more legal standing. And they all went home to get ready for a wedding, which would be a week-long festivity of partying, and dancing, and feasting, eating, drinking. By custom, Mary and Joseph, although still living with their parents, they began to see each other and be seen with each other. And just then, Mary turns up pregnant. Matthew, I don't know if you caught it in that reading, it says, Matthew says, she was found to be with child. That was a polite way of saying it was a scandal. Not a good thing in this betrothal time period. And we wonder, did she show? Did she tell him? She must have. Can you imagine that conversation? Uh, Joe, I'm pregnant, and you and I both know it's, you know, it's not with each other. You're not the father. William Willimon once said that if Mary is blessed among women, Joseph is in, embarrassed among men. <laughs> he's disappointed. He's disillusioned, I'm sure, humiliated. He's crushed and most likely angry. Dale Bruner once wrote that when God does big things, he often does embarrassing things. Joseph could testify to that. Matthew said it was a Holy Spirit event. And he ties it all back to Isaiah 7, where it was foretold that this would be a sign of the Lord someday, that there will be a virgin who will conceive and give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel. Of course, this story has been the cause of so much speculation ever since. Some have thought it was a concocted story to cover up the possible rumors of Jesus' mother 
misbehaving before the marriage. Others have proposed the idea of a virgin birth, that it was put into place to fulfill this Isaiah text. Let's make it match. Let's cover up this problem. Everyone wonders why. More was not said of the the virgin birth in the New Testament scriptures. Only Matthew and Luke. The birth narrative, we might think, would have spilt more ink on this important doctrine, the doctrine of the incarnation, God in humanity, God coming to us. But there's very little. Hardly anything of Joseph, very little of Mary, in fact. Only this mysterious birth, the long-speculated issue. I like Karl Barth, theologian, last century, who wondered if the stories might simply have been taken for granted by the Apostle Paul and by other New Testament writers, that everyone knew that Jesus came by way of the Holy Spirit. Everyone knew there was a virgin birth, he said. The point is, as Bart went on, the doctrine of the virgin birth teaches an immensely important doctrinal truth, that in human salvation, the initiative is holy with God. I can remember sitting in my freshman uh, Gospel of Matthew class with Dale Bruner teaching. And I can remember he said when it came to the virgin birth that every birth, is a, when it comes to our faith, is a virgin birth. That we come out of nowhere to believe in Christ. What now then? For Joseph, contract had been violated, a law has been broken, there can be very serious consequences, sometimes even including a stoning Matthew says that Joseph is a a righteous man. Apparently he cares so much about Mary that he decides to go against that public announcement of what's taken place. Instead, he decides to divorce her quietly, to go back to the rabbi to do away with this betrothal contract quietly. Let the world say what it wants. Let everybody assume that he's the father of the child that Mary is going to have. Let there be conflict and scandal and rumor. And Joseph just took that. I never really realized too much what a great decision that was on his part. How Joseph decided to assume for himself Mary's burden, Mary's shame. He absorbed that. He took it on. Bono had this great song a few years back. You two, called Grace. The lyrics were these. Grace, he takes the blame, he carries the shame, removes the stains. It could be his name. Joseph had this great name. Part of the family of David, the lineage. But he gave all that up. His great Jewish heritage to take on the blame and the shame of that whole experience. And then the dreams, they start, this fever is tossing and turning at night, these half-imagined voices, Mary, a baby coming, all those images, and the voice, do not be afraid, Joseph, to take Mary for your wife, for she has conceived a child from the Holy Spirit. Again, Willeman quips that that while there's a lot of annunciation art in the museums like in Europe, 
you walk through all those museums, you won't find any art about Joseph's dream. <laughs> Can you imagine Joseph bolting upright in bed <laughs> in a cold sweat after being told, being told that his fiance is pregnant and not by him and that he should marry her anyway? No artist ever took that on. What do we really know about Joseph? Matthew wants us to know this idea that he is a righteous man. What Eugene Peterson said was a chagrined but noble man. He resolved to do the right thing. But I hope you feel his heartache. He's in love. And he's just sick about this whole situation. He lies awake pondering the crisis that's unraveling their lives. He's given a dream here, and the angel calls him by name, Joseph, reminding him of who he is, a descendant of David, and that he is to give this child a Jewish name. You shall call him Jesus, which means God saves. The Savior is coming. He will be the one, Joseph. That you are, Joseph, an important part of this great event being fulfilled right now through you, Joseph. He's saying, stand in there. Get into the picture. Be there with Mary. Stand with her in this time. You are to be the first true believer. And so Joseph, he speaks a word, I think, to us about this absolute importance of responsibility. And he pushes us out of our own kind of personal issues and scandals and problems and messes that we might find ourselves in and asks us to rethink what it might be to be a kind of a stand-up good person, a righteous person. He lived his life by this rule book, the religious law, but when it came to Mary, he found that the rules were, were kind of filtering away. They didn't quite work or fit. And so Joseph becomes this first practitioner of a, a whole new morality, a new ethic in Christ, in which love is central. Kindness and compassion, forgiveness begin to challenge us and change us, change the conventions and the customs and the religious rules and laws. Have you ever thought that when Jesus went to the cross and he's hanging there and he looks down and he has the thieves on either side of him. Those words he uttered, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He absorbs the shame. Sins of the world. Where did he get that? Did he get it from this father that walked with him to Sephora and back to work and they would talk and character was built? Maybe it was from Joseph that Jesus learned the limits of legalism in religion, he would have so much trouble with the Pharisees later on. And where Jesus learned the power of love. Remember the day that Jesus stopped the crowd from stoning a woman because she had been caught in adultery? A stonable offense. Jesus says, but you, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. Where did he get that idea? Was it Joseph? Joseph, he lived that truth. He surrendered his right to be right. And I wonder 
if that's not what forgiveness is, what grace is. Morton Kelsey, an Episcopalian priest, recently wrote about Joseph these words. He said that sometimes our religious experience needs to displace our conventional human wisdom. Saints are those who follow their deepest inner promptings, even when they make no worldly sense. That's what Christmas is about, I think. It's about finally realizing that this unlikely, irrational, unexplainable appearance of love in the midst of the world's harshest realities is really the new ethic for us. That this invitation to do what Jesus did, what Joseph did, to be a Joseph, to bet our dearest dreams and to give our hearts away to our most fervent hopes, to let go of constraints and reasonableness and convention and respond and extravagant generosity. It's why we give gifts to each other, even poor Uncle Joe. (laughs) And to develop the strongest and deepest love in our hearts for God and for each other. You know, God's work is not always dramatic, not always unique. Sometimes God's most important work is simply doing what needs to be done. It's standing in the back of the picture, but standing there. You know, I used to say when I was running around with four little kids that I'm really not a father. I'm more of an equipment manager. You know, if you ever need to put that pack and play, your stroller, you know, your other crib and Yeah, Ryan, you know all about this. (laughs) I'm your guy. I can get all that in your trunk. No problem. I'm your packer. (laughs) Fathers, we stand with them. We stand there at the cradle. We stand there forever. We stand there as they grow to be toddlers and they throw their tantrums. We stand there when they get into school and they're having trouble with long division and we we, we go all the way through. We're there as teenagers when they begin to say, you're not mine. You can't tell me what to do. You know, we stand there. When they go into their 20s and they start thinking other kinds of thoughts and their values are off the charts, and we're going, well, what do they become? And we just keep standing there. We show up, and into their 30s, they begin to have kids of their own, and they come to church with us, right? <laughs> it's awesome. And we just keep standing there. Sometimes God's work is quietly assuming responsibility, changing diapers, preparing meals, taking care of the baby, going to work every day, doing your job, taking care of parents, showing up. Sometimes God's important work is just being responsible, being a Joseph, a good man, with a new ethic of love, forgiveness. About a month ago, I (laughs) submitted to the office here my concept for Advent, these four Sundays, so our graphic artist could put it all together and get something for the screen, for the front of the bulletin, which you have in your hands. So I put it together, Advent, deeper, and that Sunday, first Sunday, I talked about preparing for Christ's return, going deeper. Second Sunday, smaller, John the Baptist, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. Third Sunday, bigger, Mary, 
My soul magnifies the Lord. Let's go bigger in our faith. We talked about last week. And this week, quieter. Joseph quietly doing what's needed. Taking Mary as his wife, becoming a father to Jesus. Yeah, but what came back to us was this. Advent, deeper, smaller, bigger, quitter. (laughs) And it went up on the screen for two weeks. (laughs) before we could get it changed out. (laughs) Quitter? How ironic. (laughs) Joseph was probably the exact opposite of a quitter. (laughs) He was a quiet, strong, faithful force, a presence, a support, a constant to young Mary in a time of uncertainty. He should get a halo Joseph, he's there. He is absolutely needed in the manger. His quiet love on that first Christmas, it changed everything. It changed our whole ethic of how we're going to go about our lives. We're going to hang in there. We're going to show up. We're going to stand with one another. We're going to stand with Christ in our faith. Joseph, extending grace, taking the shame, the first believer, quietly giving his heart away. I want to be a Joseph. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this ancient man who indeed was there, stood in the stable, probably coordinated all the animals, but was there for Mary, his betrothed, raised, boy Jesus, raised our Savior, taught him the lessons of love and compassion and kindness. May we also stand with you Lord, may we stand in all the scandalous times of our lives. May we stand with you. In Christ's name we pray.